We are excited to announce that the next Jungian Psychotherapy Program, JPP, and Jungian Studies Program, JSP, will begin this October. We are now accepting applications for the 2021 to 2023 JPP JSP cohort. The application deadline is July 1st. It may be necessary for the JPP JSP to begin via Zoom, but the majority of the two year program will be in person at the Institute in Chicago. The Institute's decision to resume in person programs will be based on CDC guidelines and state and city mandates, implementing appropriate health and safety protocols for vaccinations, mask wearing, hand sanitizing, and cleaning. We will provide at least eight weeks' notice in advance of the first JPP JSP training weekend in person at the Institute. If you have any questions uh, regarding health and safety in person stuff uh, or any logistics or questions about the program, um, you can email Amy Ornay, who's the program coordinator, at A Ornay, A O R N E E, at youngchicago.org, or just visit our website and there's contact information, lots more information about the program, um, and a link to apply. Uh, applications are now done completely online. Uh, you used to have to mail in a packet, and uh, we wanted to make it simpler for everybody. So if you're interested in the program and or you'd like to apply, just visit our website, youngchicago.org. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast. Today's episode is Jung's Theory of Synchronicity and How It Shapes Our Lives, an interview with Robert Hopke. Robert H. Hopke is a licensed marriage, family, and child counselor in private practice in Berkeley, California. Along with his numerous articles and reviews published over the last 30 years, his national bestseller, There Are No Accidents, Synchronicity and the Stories of Our Lives, which he spoke about at the Institute in 1998, and we have a link to that seminar in the show notes, has been popular throughout the world and since been translated into a dozen different languages. Known for his landmark work in Jungian psychology on issues of human sexuality and social justice, such as Jung's, Jungians, and homosexuality, which he also spoke about at the Institute in 1991, and there's a link to that in the show notes, Men's Dreams, Men's Healing, a guided tour of the collected works of C.G. Jung and The Persona, Where Sacred Meets the Profane. He is currently on the clinical faculty of the Pacific Center for Human Growth, where he serves as supervisor and has been enjoying an active career as translator of works on spirituality and religion from the Italian, including a contemporary American-English rendition of The Little Flowers of St. Francis of Assisi. He's interviewed by Patricia Martin, a noted cultural analyst, author, consultant, and graduate of our two-year training program. Before we get to the interview, I want to read a couple more submissions from listeners. Andrew from the UK says, I undertook a seven-year period as an analysand from 2012 to 2019, which started when I was 50. The experience of integrating my unconscious into consciousness and moving along the bridge of individuation. I have used active imagination as a social worker for many years. I'm looking to continue the process of individuation to become self and whole. The analytic process was profound and deep and has enabled me to grow towards light and prepare every day for my death. Pete from Virginia says, I hung on every word my sister said. So when she introduced me to Jung and Tom Chitwin's A Dictionary for Dreamers, it was necessary for the 18-year-old me to follow her lead. Then, when my favorite band released the album Synchronicity, it had to be, well, synchronicity, right? Thankfully, after my hero worship of Sting and my sister faded, my interest in Jung did not, and a dream of spin-off interests like Joseph Campbell, 
and the Gnostic Gospels ensued. Being so young, my grasp was all very intellectual. I now knew Jung and his work, albeit through others. I still find Jung challenging to read as a primary source. I had found myself, or so I thought. So my work was done here, as a result of the initial interest and passion faded, but would never totally leave me. It continues to spiral back as I've aged. At each stage of my life, his work and the work of other Jungians greets me anew. And so the long COVID-induced walks have coincided with the joy of your podcasts. You could support this free podcast by making a donation, becoming a member of the Institute, or making a purchase in our online store. Your support enables us to provide free and low-cost educational resources to all. So thank you uh, so much to everyone who does that. And now let's get to the interview. Hello, this is Patricia Martin, and I'm a cultural analyst, author, and a professional affiliate at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Today, I'm with Robert Hopke. Rob is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in Berkeley, California. Along with his numerous articles and reviews published throughout the world, he's the author of the national bestseller, There Are No Accidents, Synchronicity and the Stories of Our Lives which has been translated into a dozen languages. Recently, it was followed up by his latest work, There Are No Accidents in Love, Synchronicity and the Stories of Our Families. Welcome, Rob. It's wonderful to have you with us. Great to see you again, Patricia. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. So, you know, like so many of Jung's ideas and theories, they're pretty expansive. And synchronicity is one such theory. And I just just thought to kind of anchor us, tell us in in your mind what you, how you define synchronicity. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great first question, right? Because I think particularly with synchronicity, the uh, concept is sort of entered into common parlance. So, you know, it's not just a technical piece of Jungian psychology any longer, like, you know, sting in the police, name an album, synchronicity, everyone thinks they know (laughs) what it means, right? And so it's one of those things like there are other kind of psychological terms like that, for example, like narcissism, you know, as we come off the last four years, um, or schizophrenia, or other things like that, in which the common meaning of the term isn't actually what the psychological meaning of the term is. You know, there's some overlap, but it's all, and synchronicity is one of those. So I'm constantly having to sort of explain it. I mean, um, most people don't realize that Jung actually created that word. So, I mean, it is C.G. Jung created that word. Carl Jung created the word synchronistic and synchronicity. He's the one that coined the actual term. So it's sort of like extroversion and introversion. It's the same thing there. You know, people use those words all the time, but they don't realize that Jung himself created those words. So I'm always like, Mr. You know, you were holding up the collected works guide that I'd written way back when I'm always, that's like one of my goals in my career is to kind of champion Jung and make sure that everyone attributes these things to where it actually belongs. So synchronicity is one of those concepts, right? And what Jung meant by synchronicity is, I frequently say is in the title of his book about it. It's called a causal connecting principle. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I guess I want to say is synchronicity originally is a psychological concept. It's not a spiritual concept. It's not a metaphysical concept. It's not a philosophical concept. Um, It can go in those directions, but the original meaning was psychological and Jung coined it in late in his career. And the reason he coined it, was because he wanted to make clear that the way things operate psychologically, that is to say within us, in our psyche, is different than the way things operate in the external world. So in the external world, there's the principle of cause and effect, you know, it's sort of modern physics, right? Every action uh, engenders an equal and opposite reaction, right? And that's really the basis of science, right? Right, He wanted to establish the reality of our internal world on par with our external world. And he often, and, you know, we can see this even in the way that people think about psychological issues. You know, for example, if, if someone describes someone's reaction as psychosomatic, 
Right. Right. Uh, people tend to think, well, that's not real. Psychosomatic equals not real. But it's the opposite. In other words, our psyche has a reality and ex- affects our experience of the world. Our subjective reality affects our experience of the world as much as the sun shining through the curtains here or the temperature of the room. In other words, Jung wanted to establish the reality of the psyche as equal in importance to our experience as the external world. So consequently, he came up with synchronicity, colon, an a-causal connecting principle in which he wanted to validate the connections between internal experience and external experience on par with modern physics in which two external events coincide and interact with one another. So that's a little bit complicated. And the easiest way to kind of explain it was that, is that, you know, the the easiest way to explain it is to just call synchronicity the concept of meaningful coincidences. Ah. And that's really where the psychological meaning of the term comes. Jung wanted to validate the meaning people give to or spontaneously experience sometimes in the events of their life. And one of the easiest ways to point at that is when a coincidence happens to be meaningful rather than meaningless. Well, how do we judge that? Um, It's entirely subjective, which is often very uh, flummoxes certain people, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because... You know, if I'm doing a crossword puzzle and I write and the and the clue is, you know, seven letter, uh, seven letters, singer from Hoboken, and I hear a Frank Sinatra song come on, I know the answer is Sinatra, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's kind of a cool thing. Or if I'm like thinking of a neighbor I haven't seen in a while and I just happen to get out, you know, with my mask on these days, right? Get out <laughs> and go see the neighbor. <laughs> And and bump into that neighbor. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting coincidence. Well, those are coincidences. But the coincidences that Jung called synchronistic, examples of synchronicity, are meaningful. And meaningful means they had a direct and transformative effect on someone's life or were very heavy with emotional reaction and symbolic import for someone. So... A synchronistic event would be one in which that coincidence changes the course of somebody's life or changes their internal attitude toward a circumstance or a person in a way that would not have happened otherwise. So I sometimes, you know, when people ask me to sign their books, I always sign, may your life be enlightened by chance. In other words, these are chance events that intervene, that bring us to enlightenment. They're not things we've sought out. They're not things we created. They're a causal. We didn't make them happen. They happened by chance. But they had such deep emotional import or symbolic significance for us that we can't ignore them and therefore have to kind of work or integrate them into our lives, which is why I've written the book, you know, So how people met their partners is frequently a synchronistic event. You know, I mean, obviously, if I go on a dating app and I find somebody attractive and I go out with him or her and we hit it off, that's not a chance meeting. Right. But like in my, in the, we'll get to some of the material in my latest book about this, you know, how people met their partners. I looked at the first episode of Chef's Table and Mm -hmm. the Italian chef Massimo Bottura and his wife, Laura, talked about how they met. And they just happened by a whole series of coincidences to share the same shift at the restaurant. She wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't supposed to be there. And it all happened by chance. And they bumped into one another. And then not only that, but the rest of their relationship was all very synchronistic, completely by chance. They didn't intend to meet one another. They did. And then they tried to get together. And then they were separated by circumstances by so chance. She, he had to go to Italy for an emergency. She was stuck in New York. And then all of a sudden, the, they tried and tried and tried to get back together again. And then all of a sudden, a whole series of other 
circumstances completely by chance happened and they got back together. It was just sort of like this whole series of events that brought them together, separated them, brought them together, which were completely coincidental, not meant or intended by the person. So this makes me want to ask you, do some people experience more synchronicity than others? They do. Can you, and, can you and conjure this into your life? I guess I uh, want to say maybe conjure is the wrong word, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, you cultivate yeah, it? No, definitely. Absolutely. And you know, that's an, that's a frequent question because synchronicity isn't about the coincidence itself out there, but more the meaning you or I experience in here. People who are very alive to their inner lives and experience things more deeply and with more insight, experience more synchronicities. Synchronicity is a subjective phenomenon. So I frequently talk about the way in which the same coincidence happens to two different people in the same incident. And one person is synchronistic, and the same incident is not synchronistic for the other person. So the story I kind of tell about that was, um, you know, I was, uh, as an intern, I was uh, seeing a client. And the client was really working through his issues of powerlessness with regard to his mother in this case, right? And he was like, I just feel so powerless. I feel so powerless. And it was in the middle of a storm and all the lights went out. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm like, there was a literal power failure while my client was talking about his power failure. And I'm like, (laughs) "Uh, okay. And I'm sitting there, I'm the therapist. So I'm like, listening and reading meaning into it and experiencing it fully my client's upset like he didn't even realize the lights went out like he's just in his face so i'm sitting there i'm like wow that's kind of like a movie you know like this power failure in the middle of a power failure i was like whoa okay and we go through the session and finally he says like as I work with him around his powerlessness and how disempowered he is and how he could empower himself, he's like finally gets around to like, well, you know, I could assert myself in this way. You know, I do. I am powerful. I could be powerful. And all the lights go back on. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> he didn't notice that either. Right. <laughs> so that's what I have to say. When you say, do some people experience more synchronicities than other? They do. Because they're more alive to the emotional impact of events on themselves. They're more alive to the symbolic nature of the events that they're experiencing, right? And they allow those events to shape them or form their consciousness, which is really why I do what I do as a therapist and certainly why I've written these books is to sort of wake people up to the way in which they could experience their life. And this was Jung's point in in, uh, coining the concept. He wanted to coin the concept of synchronicity so people could be woken up to the way in which their everyday experience could be made more meaningful if they allowed themselves to reflect on it in a deeper way emotionally, if they became, became more alive to the level of symbolism that surrounds them by which they understand their lives and they let the story of their life be shaped by the events rather than try to assert their ego and make it this, that, or the other thing. So yeah, no, absolutely. People definitely experience much more. They, those people are great because those are the people I've interviewed for my books. You know, they're walking around and they're experiencing synchronicities all the time. I'm like they're, you know, I have certain friends that are just synchronicity generators. They just, (laughs) and then there are other people that are just like, no, that never happens to me. And I'm like, hmm, we need to sort of open up your inner life. And the more that that happens, the more these connections between you and what's going on around you will be felt and experienced and understood. Do you, do you often find that um, in certain life situations, synchronicity tends to show up more. So I'm thinking of, you know, somebody who's at the crossroads, for instance. Yes. So they're open, right? They're questioning, they're wondering. Someone who's lonely and looking for f- friendship or love or right. do these moments t- tend to to drive more of it to happen? Well, you're you're quite lovely to ask that question because that enables me to say one of the few things that I could say is my, one of my original contributions to this is what I came across when I was writing, the, researching the first book, I was researching the first book and Jung came up with those three first characteristics of synchronistic events. They were a causal. The person didn't cause them themselves. They're emotionally powerful and they're symbolic. 
But I noticed when I was hearing these stories that all of these incidents occurred for people when they were in times of transition. Oh. They were in liminal, what we would call liminal places in their lives. You know, limin means threshold. So they were on the threshold from this to that. Sometimes it was, uh, sometimes there's an external situation. As you just said, they're lonely. They're looking for a partner. They are unhappy in their place of employment or their job or their career. They're looking for another career. Um, somebody is, you know, in the last chapter of the first book, somebody's died and they're in a transition from, you know, from being with the person to not being with the person or vice versa. They're pregnant. You know, they're in a time of transition, you know, so times of transition externally, but also times of transition internally, which were the most interesting things. Like people were in a process of transformation. They were sub that they were largely unconscious of until the synchronistic event or coincidence occurred that brought their awareness to the way in which they needed to move from here to there in terms of their internal attitude. So times of transition are in fact the times that are the usually the most rich with the possibility of synchronicity. And I'm often sort of like, you know, when a synchronistic event occurs to me, that's the first place I think, oh, wow, like what's my transition here? Like what am I being moved from to, you know, right? So, right. So we don't. I, mean, I was just. I was just joking with you before we started. Right. That one of the synchronistic things that occurred between you and me actually mm-hmm. was your first interview of me. I had never used this application Zoom before. Right. So you're like Zoom, and you know you you were miss. You know you're like Miss Zoom expert over there, and I was like Zoom. I'd never even heard of it. Right. <laughs> so I downloaded for our interview, and we used it, and it was pretty easy. You know, I've done uh-huh. FaceTime before and stuff like that, and then COVID. Right. And now we're all living on Zoom. Right. After that interview, I thought to myself, wow, how synchronistic that was. Like, if it hadn't been for this interview, I wouldn't even know what Zoom was. Like, this all was very, very well timed. So let's give an example. Like, okay, I need to move from like my technological inexpertise to my technological expertise. And little did I know why. You know? So that's one of those things I was thinking, like, okay, this wasn't just sort of like this strange random chance there was sort of a place that this had in where I was going that I didn't even know I was going so yeah times of transition are a very rich place that people often experience synchronicity and it often points to the transition you know the synchronistic event occurs it often sort of points to the transition that people either need to make or have been making or didn't know they were making right. you know one of the things that like, a very common place for example is somebody who has sort of adapted to a problematic or unsatisfying relationship. And they happen to kind of come across someone that just knocks them over. And it's like, oh, I didn't even know I was that unhappy in my relationship until I met you. Or same with the job. I mean, I had a lot of stories in the first book about people who were just headhunted. You know, people out of nowhere came, you know, just calling through and, and it brought their awareness to the way in which what they were doing wasn't really satisfying. They needed to do something else in their life. And this synchronistic random event occurred where they came across someone who was complaining. You know, one of my friends got his job and started in his career because he had just bumped into someone whose company had an opening that day. And those two friends got together and the friend was just complaining about how inconvenient it was. And the other person was thinking, hmm, that's a job I could do. Oh, and that's really? how they, it just happened by chance. He wasn't looking for another job. He wasn't even looking to get out of his job, but unconsciously he was unhappy in where he was working. And so that's the way in which a synchronistic event raises our awareness to what we might be experiencing unconsciously. Right. Do you ever find that you're having to, um, in your work as a therapist, kind of connect the dots for somebody about their synchronistic experiences and say, you know, like Harry Potter, I always think of Harry Potter and the letters <laughs> coming in the mailbox, telling right, him, right. you know, pay attention. This right, is something right, going right. on here bigger than you. Is, well, you, you know, to- sort of draw the curtain to tell us the little secrets of a therapist, right? Here we go, right? <laughs> um, you know, what often occurs is that uh, people will project that onto me. So those, those, what I mean by that is they'll sit down and start telling me the story. 
And I didn't say anything, right? I'm just sitting there listening. And I'm like, and they're looking, they're like, oh, I know what you're making of that. You think that's a synchronistic event, they say to me. And I'm like, well, I didn't say anything. I'm just sitting here listening to the story. And I'm like, yeah. And of course I do the therapist thing. Well, do you think it's synchronistic? Oh, (laughs) Because they project it onto me. You know, and, oh, and yeah. that's a little bit why I like talking about it, because, you know, there's a certain all of us Jungians deal with this. There's a certain prejudice in our very extroverted thinking based culture against internal, intuitive, emotional experiences. You know, what's mm-hmm. not material is sort of looked at as not real. Yes. And Jung wanted to establish the reality of it. Right. So you sort of see that reflected, like the person's already there saying this is a synchronistic event, but they feel kind of embarrassed to sort of say that they made meaning out of their lives, you know, and they can't prove it because it's an internal subjective assessment or experience. So they project it onto me because they're in therapy. They're in therapy with a Jungian. And they came to me for a reason, right? I'm like, that's right. <laughs> they didn't just fall through the ceiling in my chair. They sought me out. But that's one of the reasons. That's how some of the, that's, that's one of the more classic things that occurs, you know? Or even, I mean, one of the things, I wrote an article way back when for the Journal of Analytical Psychology called Synchronicity in Sessions. So synchronistic events that occurred in the middle of a therapy session. And I took my, I took a page out of Jung because the famous story of Jung was that he was sitting there with an an analysand with a patient who was describing a dream in which she was, she dreamt of a very multicolored scarab beetle that she was holding in her hand. And in the middle of their session, their therapy session, an actual scarab beetle flew through the window and landed and Jung caught it and said, here is your beetle, (laughs) you know? And so this is, I've had, you know, like the story I just told in which the client is, you know, talking about their internal power failure and an external power failure occurs in the middle of our session. So that's like, that's one of the things that typically occurs in psychotherapy. We're there to open up a certain kind of liminal space for the client so that what they might just experience unconsciously going through their every day, we allow them to start to reflect on and experience more profoundly. And they begin to start making the connections that they need to make between what would ordinarily be experienced, the random events of their life. So this makes me think about um, this, you know, you made the comment earlier about coming to zoom because I interviewed you for the book I'm writing. And that was a year ago. And uh, when I did that interview with you and I, I just wonder if you're noticing any difference in how synchronicity is working in a more digitized culture. Yeah. It's a super question, isn't it? I mean, it's just like really a super question. I, I have some of those stories, um, in the second book, because, you know, I, I think the only way anyone ever meets anyone ever, ever is now online, right? right. Like, right. And that, you know, times 20 hundred now with COVID, since none of us are even leaving our house, right? <laughs> like, we're not bumping into anyone in a bar and we're not going to any parties or anything. So, right. yeah, there was a number of different stories around kind of, um, once upon a time, back in the old days, you know, I have a story in my first book about my a friend of mine who actually met her lover because her lover, what happened was her lover had a pretty common Jewish name in New York City. And she met this guy. And so she looked him up on the phone book and she called who she thought she had met, except it was somebody with the exact same name, except it wasn't him. And the two of them got to talking and they actually (laughs) ended up getting together. So it's like she called the wrong number and ended up with a guy that she saw for quite a number of years who had the same name as the guy she intended to meet. So it's sort of like, you know, old style digital crossed signals here. Right. So there's that piece of it. Another one is sort of like, you know, these dating apps, for example, (laughs) I have this great story in the second book, um, these two gay men that, that met on a 
met, I'll say met, they didn't actually ever meet, but they sort of connected online. And what happened was the, the first time they connected, he was way far away. And then he just sort of popped up again and he, he had actually taken a job even closer. And so the person on the receiving end of that was like, hmm, I, this guy keeps getting closer to me. But there were all kinds of reasons they didn't want to kind of connect or date or hook up or whatever they were intending to do. And then what happened was the third time that he popped on and Chris was like this location tracker, tracker, the guy ended up teaching at a school literally around the corner from the first guy's house. Wow. Like he was practically <laughs> on his doorstep. And the two of them finally like were like, I think we need to meet, you know, before, right. <laughs> you know, before we, you end up actually in my house at some point. So that's one of the ways in which synchronicity can occur kind of in a digital age, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's sort of, it's very interesting. Like another story I'll tell you too, is a more personal story. My mortgage broker and a client of mine have very, very similar names. Right. So I'm refinancing my house And I'm meaning to send this financial information to my mortgage broker, except in my email program, my client's name pops up. And all of this financial information gets sent to my client. Oh. And it broke open in our therapy a whole bunch of different issues. It actually moved things along really interestingly, right? Because he he didn't look at any of my, he knew it was a mistake. And so he maintained my privacy and deleted the email right away. But it brought up like the way in which, A, your therapist isn't perfect, right. which was like a really rich source of exploration for the two of us. <laughs> you know, there was that. I imagine. Right? And yeah. then he, for whatever reason, he had a number of different preconceptions about my life. Mm-hmm. that realizing I owned a home and I was refinancing it, et cetera, blew up. So there was this whole like way in which this digital crossed paths, which was clearly a mistake, right? It was a mistake. Um, ended up moving our therapy forward in a very productive way. You know, it got him past certain preconceptions of who we wa- who I was And we actually ended up kind of working it out with one another. It was very interesting, but you know, the digital, um, the digital world definitely, uh, you know, kind of opens up a whole realm of connections between people that, you know, are, can be quite intentional. Like you and I, you know, organized and did this interview or especially these days, you know, with COVID, everyone is, you know, using Zoom and connecting on the phone, et cetera. But, you know, alongside that is the random chance, you know, technology doesn't always work. Sometimes you get the wrong number. Sometimes you send the wrong email to the wrong person. And yet it can be a very meaningful and potentially transformative event if you work with it. That's, right. I guess, that's the bottom line. You know, that was Jung's point in um, coining the concept. He wanted people to stop sleepwalking through their lives and stop and pay attention to what was happening to them and not just dismiss a random chance or a coincidence, but really take it inside and explore it and see if it does mean anything, see if it does lead them forward in any way, shape or form. And and so do do you find that most uh, synchronistic moments, do they tend to be joy giving or, 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 or sometimes just, you know, are, are they ever grim? They are often, they're very grim. I will say, I mean, uh, you know, I, I wanted in the first book, I had to really, uh, I say go to the mat with my editor because I guess the editor wanted it to be, you know, upbeat and, you know, I frequently say to my clients, like no one comes to therapy because they want to. Like if everything is going great, they're not coming into therapy, right? <laughs> like, you know, I, I, it's always very awkward when I've seen clients and they call back and I'm like, I'm happy to hear from you, but I'm realizing that if you're calling me, things are probably not going to go very, aren't going very well, right? <laughs> so, you know, the stories where that, um, when I go into this a little bit more, for example, in the second book in particular, um, because I think the stories around death or accidents can be really bittersweet or poignant. 
um, the story I end the first book on, I tell it again in the second book because the second book's about family connections, right? right? So this this woman, this client of mine, I saw um, her son left, had a wonderful Christmas break and on his way back to college here in Northern California, got killed in a car accident, oh. right? And so it was really difficult. And she, I, you know, I mean, I don't think there's anything worse than losing a child and particularly unexpectedly in an accident like this, right? So she was having a horrible, horrible time of it and, um, you know, deeply depressed, you know, what we call complicated bereavement, you know, like really a difficult bereavement. And what happened was months later, she's sitting there at home, just not knowing how she's going to get out of this funk and really feeling kind of quasi suicidal. And the postman rings the door and has this like envelope, this beat up envelope. And she sees that it's actually addressed to her in her son's handwriting. Oh my. So what had happened was, he had taken all of these pictures during the Christmas break. This was back when, you know, you would go to the one hour photo um, development place and actually get physical photographs, right? Not now everyone's digital, right? But there's that. So he had gotten them all developed in an hour, put them in an envelope, sent them to his mother, but he didn't put enough postage on. And so he mails it on the way back to school. He then gets killed. The envelope, without enough postage on it gets, you know, forward to hither and yon all over the place for months until finally at this moment in which she's like, I just wish I could talk to him again or had more contact with him. This envelope he had actually sent her months before arrives in the mail. So, you know, it's like this synchronistic event in which she, it, she realized he's not here physically, but he still is here psychically he still exists you know his energy is still in the world their memory their life they had together wasn't killed when he was killed it exists and so this physical piece of him arrives months later right completely by chance to remind her that there is this borderline between life and death he's gone but he's not gone you know he's still here but he's not here so it's a synchronistic event that's not like um everything's wonderful right it's not like oh my god i got the job i found the love of my life i found my spiritual teacher you know some of those stories are great and they're fun to read but this is another story in which is sort of like okay the dark side of life right right of a child sort of under the death of a child is sort of underlined you know, yes. uh, my husband died eight years ago. And in the course of his dying process, he died of early onset Alzheimer's. I had, I go into this in great detail in the second book, you know, because it's a family relationship. All kinds of electrical phenomena were occurring around my house the entire time he was dying. It started with the doorbell ringing out of nowhere. And, you know, the doorbell started ringing. And then I'm sitting there um And all of a sudden, all the lights go off and then all the lights go back on. And I'm like, okay, he's at the nursing home. At this point, I get up and I'm like, oh my God, he died. I go to the nursing home. He was still alive. I get into my car. I go to put the key in the car. All the lights on the dashboard and the headlights flash on and flash off. And the key's in my hand. I don't know how that happened. Um, And I was telling people about that and everyone kind of thought, I think they thought I was kind of loony and losing it. Right. (laughs) Well, my sister came for Christmas. Deep grief. That's deep deep grief. grief, You know, or they, or there's, there's the California explanation of it. You know, like my, my husband is sending vibes and turning all this on and off, or I'm sending vibes. Right. This is the causal explanation of it. So my sister, my sister who's, uh, you know, she's, She's Lutheran minister. She's got a spirituality. She's kind of cool about this stuff. She came and stayed with me for that Christmas. He, he was still alive. And we're sitting in the living room, and all of a sudden, we're hearing monks chanting Gregorian chant. And I'm like, okay. And so we turn the TV down, and it's coming from my bedroom. Well, I have a CD clock radio with Gregorian chant in it. And it had turned itself on in the bedroom. Wow. And and my sister looked at me. She said, you're not kidding, are you? And I'm like, I know. <laughs> this stuff has been going on for months. It's like crazy. Uh, lights going on, TV going on, uh, 
the CD-ROM player had an old disco album in it. Suddenly that turned itself on. It was nuts. I, I was asleep with the dog in the bedroom. Suddenly lights shining in through my eyes. Somehow the lamp in the living room turned on, was reflected from the bathroom mirror into my eyes. I was just like, it was, on, it was ongoing. There must have been 15 incidents like this. Wow. How did this all, did it end or did just? Well, what happened was, I mean, he died. I had him cremated <laughs> and I, I have his ashes. I had this ashes at home here in this beautiful box. Right. And it was still all going on. And my Roman Catholic spiritual director, who I see once a month said, you know, we don't keep people's bodies in our homes. We put them in cemeteries in our tradition. <laughs> so I actually had his remains interred in the Catholic cemetery and oh. it all stopped. How interesting. And what I make of it is that, you know, my sister actually pointed this out. She says, you know, my, my, uh, we bought this house. It was a fixer upper in the house I'm sitting and talking to you and uh, it was a fixer upper and he loved doing all of that stuff and he did all the electrical equipment all the electrical wiring here in this house himself oh. and I thought to myself like as he's leaving this life this man just can't pry his fingers off his <laughs> you know his off his handiwork his, yeah. his handiwork exactly that's what Carol Ann made of it she was like okay that's what happened so you know again you know, he's gone. It was a very difficult period in my life. It wasn't like wonderful. And some of this stuff was actually sort of creepy. I mean, it was sort of like freaking me out a little, you know, I felt yeah. a little bit like haunted, so to speak. And Jung had a few stories like this in his synchronicity book about ways in which people who had died came to him either in, um, you know, sort of metaphysical or, um, paranormal kinds of ways you know and so that's an example of how some synchronicities really aren't like hearts and flowers sometimes they occur in times of transition that are extraordinarily difficult if not actually tragic in some ways but yeah nevertheless they happen so yeah since then i have had no problems i'm like <laughs> the house the lights stay off the tv stays off and nothing gets turned on i think you know he's finally at peace he's sort of moved on i think that's what i that's a causal explanation of course you know the idea is that he is somehow making all of this happen and so if we stick strictly on Yin Yung's definition those are sort of random events like whatever the electrical wiring was doing in my house just happened to be synchronistically, synchronistically associated with this period in which he was dying. Well, I don't know what to make of the fact that once he was interred, it stopped. Yes. I'm like, One would okay. have to wonder. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if when you're lecturing and writing articles about the topic of synchronicity, I mean, we live in a very data-driven, scientific world. And do, do you have to field a lot of questions from people who are doubters and, um, you know, want to peg this as a crackpot idea? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I do. I mean, Jung did too. You know, I mean, <laughs> Jung was sort of seen as this mystic crackpot for many, many years, really, frankly, until the 80s. Right. You know, he died yes, in 61. and. You know, he, you know, the Freudians just looked at him like he was had lost his mind, uh, you know. And so that was kind of one of the things. Although it's sort of interesting because what's happening now is sort of like, and this is not really my area of expertise, but a man named Bernard Beitman, you know, is um, a professor of psychiatry. And uh, he has been looking at the connections between modern physics and this concept of synchronicity, right? Because now what's happening in modern physics is ways in which people are beginning to see that actual physical states of matter don't aren't constant. Things can be particles and waves simultaneously. There's the Heisenberg principle in which you see something and it's not right there, it's somewhere else, but it's there, but it's not there, but it's there, but it's not there. In other words, I think we're beginning to sort of see on a kind of a deep level that what we might have known intuitively, spiritually or emotionally, that everything is connected in some way that we can't actually physically trace or even perceive sometimes. Right. So that, you know, that goes beyond Jung's concept. Jung was, Jung, Jung stayed on the psychological level, but there's a way in which this, 
multiplicity of unseen connections between ourselves and the world around us um, can be explained, researched, posited as potential physical connections that are below our threshold of awareness and or below our current level of, as you said, scientific uh, research. We may not be able to point at that. So there may be ways in which I, you know, am or Paul's release of physical energy creates some actual literal physical effect in the external world that I'm not able to perceive, but I see the results of it and sort of see. Jung was sort of agnostic about that. You know, like Jung was like, okay, well, maybe that's the case, maybe not. You know, it goes to the concept of God, too, because like there are original religious explanations for this as well. You know, God made this miracle happen, you know, or this, that, or the Holy Spirit came and did X, Y, or Z. Again, a causal explanation. We stay sort of agnostic about it. You know, it's possible. Mm-hmm. So that's why I have to say some of the doubters, I say that to them. I'm like, well, you know, it is possible that there are physical causes for what we're experiencing as meaningful coincidences that we just aren't quite aware of yet. And that we might at some later date with greater instrumentation and awareness find out, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the unified field theory of physics, you know, so. So if let's take this a little further and say, well, if something's rising to your awareness or you, you're, it, it, it's precognitive in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, in the end, once it does, you know, you wake up to it, you have enough synchronistic events around whatever this issue or decision is in your life, then the bigger picture is, is, has to be something about moving us along to some greater consciousness. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. What's I mean, the purpose of synchronicity, really, in the end? <laughs> well, that's, that goes to the basic concept of why Jung actually coined it. Because he kind of felt that, you know, like with our physical bodies, mm-hmm. right? He notices that our physical bodies regulate themselves in order to maintain our survival until some point at which, you know, all the, all the systems break down and we actually physically die. But he looked at physical bodies and it's like, you know, it's kind of amazing, you know, that this, that, or the other thing sort of corrects itself, stays in balance, you know, points things, you know, basically we correct ourselves. So he said, well, why wouldn't the psyche be like that too? You know, our own internal emotional or spiritual life has its own arc of birth, development, peak, growth, decline. In other words, it's a, it's its own self-regulating system. Right. So right. that's exactly right. I mean, he thought that the, the point is that below our awareness, the way that, you know, below our awareness, our adrenaline gland, gland releases this particular enzyme or our stomach does this or that. We're not aware of that. But those processes are going on to keep us alive and keep us growing and keep us nourished and keep us moving along, even though we don't consciously participate in those. Mm-hmm. Same with the psyche. And one of, and the place that he really points out, which is kind of hard to argue with, is dreams. Oh, sure. Right? Every night we dream. Well, you know, there's got to be a purpose to that because all mammals dream and it serves some positive evolutionary purpose as a species, right? Right. And the research they've done on animals shows that they dream species-specific survival behaviors. So they they give them a they give them a neurotransmitter that allows them to enact their dreams when they go into REM sleep, and they begin to see that rabbits burrow, cats attack, hedgehogs roll up into a ball when they dream. You know, if you look at my my little Boston Terriers here, my little Boston Terrier has three dreams: he plays, he attacks, and he sucks at his mother's nipple. All species specific <laughs> survival behaviors, you know. Right. Right. He's able to defend himself. He's able to sort of maintain a social hierarchy and he's able to receive nourishment. Right. right. All so that's what Jung point out. Like there are ways in which what goes on in our unconscious contributes to our growth and survival throughout our life. And there are points. Synchronistic events are one of those points in our lives in which we become aware of how the psyche is actually moving us along and helping us progress into greater wholeness 
integration. Sometimes that's in the face of a tragedy, like I was said, you know, sometimes moves us past that piece of tragedy into, you know, a reintegration of our life after the trauma. Sometimes it opens up opportunities that we have been kind of keeping down for whatever reasons and sort of need to be opened up to. Sometimes it brings new people into our lives. That's why I like telling stories about love and relationship and pregnancy, right? Because, I mean, every single every single conception and birth is a synchronistic event. Oh, There's course, like right? millions of sperm. Right. And it's just a complete chance that it happens to fertilize that egg. And that mm-hmm. person is completely unique. Like mm-hmm. every one of every birth, every single one of us is a synchronistic event by our very conception. So, you know, it's not surprising to me that in pregnancies, particularly where mothers or fathers or kids, you know, have a, uh, have a complete experience of synchronicity. That's why the whole second book was I had all these stories about family connections that were synchronistic that didn't fit into the first book. I hadn't planned for them. Mm. So, you know, the second book is, you know, about how two people met, you know, certainly the beginning of a family. Um, all kinds of stories about things that siblings share with one another that they weren't aware of. You know, I had a long story. The stories in the second book tend to be a little bit longer and more sustained because I was like, okay, you know, I didn't need to make the, I didn't need to use a hundred illustrations. I already written the first book. So I was able to go into people's stories in more depth in the second book. Long story of two sisters who had a psychic relationship. The one had an experience of what the other sister was experiencing throughout her life, right from the moment of her birth. And the, the sister, the other sister did not. <laughs> so the psychic experience only went in one direction. And she had, the, the two of them had so many interesting stories about things that would happen to the one sister that the other sister knew about precognitively, if you want to say it telepathically, you know, there was that. So sibling stories, you know, the identical twin stories are all very interesting, you know, uh, all the various things identical twins experience together, even though they're separated at birth. Another whole set of stories was ancestors, like things that people had in common with ancestors that they never met. And that the story that sort of touched me off on that one was I had interviewed her for the first book, and it took 20 years to get it into print. But um, this woman uh, had been trained, I think, as a doctor, Right. But what she really always wanted to be was sort of a double bassoonist. She was very musically inclined. And so she went into this field and she was like, and her father was always very discouraging around a music career. So anyway, his father died. He had been estranged from the father. She never knew her grandfather. And they go to clear out the house in Ohio. And she goes upstairs and she finds a double bassoon. Oh, my. With all of this music, it turns out that like a great uncle of hers was a actually very well-known double bassoonist in the area and had actually taught. And she was like, it's a sign. You know, like, yeah. here I, am. I mean, it's a rather unusual instrument on top of it. It wasn't like she found out her uncle played the piano or something right. like this is like this Guitar. very odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Very specific. Like a very, very specific, you know, kind of thing. Or a friend, uh, a friend of mine actually said he had grown up with this kind of thing about pelicans. Like out of nowhere. You know how like kids like have a favorite animal like monkeys or, you know, whatever. Anyway, his was pelicans. So he was connecting all these pictures of pelicans and pe- stuffed pelicans, etc. So in his late 20s, he does his, um, you know, as everyone's doing these days, gene- genealogical research. He's researching his background, right? And he turns, it turns out that his family had some kind of noble background in Austria or somewhere. And the family coat of arms had a pelican on it. It oh. was like, it was like his childhood. <laughs> I know it was like the strange thing. It was like very specific animal, not like a teddy bear, not, you know, a dog, a pelican. Like, I don't know how many kids, you know, that collect pelicans. That's rather abstruse, but it turns out that, you know, the pelican, and I talk about this some in the dream, the pelican has a whole rich uh, 
uh, what I say, complex symbolic meanings within medieval symbology, you know, because mm-hmm. the pelican supposedly wounds its own breast to feed its young ones. And there's all this mythology about pelicans, which is why it ended up on the coat of arms, the family coat of arms that my client didn't even know was on the coat of arms. And yet there's this pelican. So I thought it was very interesting, like the things that we have in common with our ancestors that somehow you can't explain it through genetics. You know, there's not a pelican gene, you know, that you can say you've got passed down through the family. It's wholly synchronistic, you know. And so that's where like some of the connections between uh, family members, I think, is so interesting. It's there's a way in which the point of the second book is that synchronistic events, as you said just earlier, tend to move us toward a sense of awareness and wholeness. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the places we experience wholeness in our life are our families, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if our families are not integrated or broken, there's a certain trauma that occurs. And if our families, if we see our connections with our family, our families are one of the first places that we experience wholeness. And so it's sort of an archetypal place in which we experience the self with a capital S. It's us, we our families reflect us and we reflect uh, we reflect our families back to them and you know there's a way in which it seems like a natural place therefore for synchronistic events to occur is within family relationships and that's what the whole second book is about i go into it i can't let you go without asking (laughs) this last question and i ask everyone this question rob okay you um I know you had a really interesting young career as a therapist and, and, a, and a young writer. I mean, you, you started writing in your 20s. Yeah, yeah, in my 20s. So I wonder, how did you come to Carl Jung? And is, was there any synchronicity in that? A little bit, I would say. I mean, I did a master's in theology first, and I actually used that degree to get licensed. But, and, um, but I kind of felt like if I was going to be a therapist, I really should study counseling, right? Well, study psychology per se. So what happened was I went to Hayward State, which is now called Cal State East Bay here. And um, what was really nice was <laughs> the chair of the department happened to be Swiss. Oh, she was she was a she was quite the character. She you know Dorlisa Barmetler Ewing, but she as chair of the department, she looked at everyone who was coming in and she saw that I already had a master's degree. So she sort of plucked me out and she's like, "What are you doing a second master's degree for? You already have a master's degree." And I'm like, "Well, so I explained it. I said it was in pastoral counseling. I don't really feel like that, you know." Next. So she said to me, "Why don't we do this?" She says, "There's no reason for you to recapitulate." all the courses you took within your theology degree, just do an independent study with me. She says, you know, and it'll give you a chance to read Jung. And I'm like, Jung? Why Jung? Well, she was Swiss, you know, like Jung is like her hero, right? So she says, how did you get through seminary without reading Jung? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, it was a theology degree. We were, and plus this was 1983, Jung, no, Joseph Campbell had not happened. No one knew who Jung was, you know, like none of that had happened. And so that was somewhat synchronistic. You know, I happened to be paired with a Swiss professor who gave me the chance to do it. So I, of course, not even knowing Jung, I just said, okay, well, I'll just read all of the collected works. Oh, wow. That's a job. Well, I didn't know what a job it was. I just thought, okay, this I'm 25 and I read like the wind and I'm like, okay. Yeah, you I had time. Like, I'm like, oh my God, there are 18 volumes of this. I'm like, okay. So it did. It took me two years to read through the collected works. And it, it, you know, that's why I wrote the guided tour of the collected works because I wouldn't recommend that anyone do it the way I did it from right. volume one to volume 18. I thought it was ridiculous, but somewhat synchronistic. I just happened to be paired with a Swiss advisor if i had not been paired with that swiss advisor in all likelihood i would not have read jung because I, all of my original training was very psychoanalytic and they were very anti jung you know they were very like jung is a crackpot and you know he rejected freud and you know there was all of that stuff going on so yeah somewhat synchronistic you know i will say it was a it was a matter of chance that i ended up being who i am professionally so that's wonderful you know this has been one of the most exciting, 
enriching, <laughs> wonderful podcasts we've done here at the Institute. And I really, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's always a pleasure. Oh, you're wonderful. And so uh, thanks again. I'll let you take your, your analysis now because I know okay. you're ran late, but I could, you were so delicious. It's okay. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, honey. Bye-bye. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to the 2020 donors who gave at the supporting member level and above. Barbara Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie K. Bryan. Eric Cooper, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, James Fidelibus, John Koroluski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Cobb, Gerald Weiner, Karen West, and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. And thank you to everybody else who gave at that level but wishes to remain anonymous.